Alan, thank you for joining us for what I hope has been an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in metology. We're talking today. My name's Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, COVID-free. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor of Infectious Diseases, Public Health, Preventative Medicine, and what I find most interesting, ophthalmology, from the Origin Health and Science University in the USA as well as a CSF steering committee member, Professor Kevin Winthrop. Welcome, Kevin, and thanks for giving up your time. We greatly appreciate it. Um, today, we're going to be discussing the recently published in the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases, a safety study of Phil Gottlieb, the JAK1 selective, or now they call it JAK1 preferred uh, JAK inhibitor as a treatment for rheumatoid. So before we get the ball rolling, Kevin, how has COVID affected your practice, what's the Omicron done to you guys? Uh, and have you seen some major changes? Yeah, I mean, we're still kind of cleaning up our Delta surge here and uh, Omicron really just, just got here in the last two weeks and it, it has already in two weeks, you know, really exploded. And, and at least in my territory, it, it's actually less than 50% of the cases, but uh, nationwide in the US, you probably read in the paper, it's about uh, three quarters of the cases now are Omicron really just in the last two or three weeks and went from zero to 73%. So um, it, it is, uh, we haven't seen a big surge yet alongside that. Um, so I, I don't know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, that may just be coming. We're, we're looking, you know, for a one or two week lag when that happens to see what happens at hospitalizations and whatnot. But, but I know in some of the other countries, uh, they haven't seen rises in hospitalizations yet, um, despite the increase. I, I don't know how it is in Oz, but are you, you seeing something similar? Yeah, we're starting to see the Omicron come in, but we're not seeing the hospitalizations yet. So yeah. we'll wait and see. Yeah, uh, But as you say, it's early days and our numbers are very small compared to many other countries. Let's talk a, a little bit about the JAK inhibitors. Yeah, I wonder if you've got a feel for the market there and whether oral surveillance has had a big impact on the prescribing of jacks and the whole positioning of jacks in that market. Yeah, I mean, certainly the FDA's label change that took place a couple of weeks ago, everyone was anticipating it, you know, since ACR when all that data was showcased. Um, but uh I, I do think it's caused a shift. I mean, there's clear, there's very clear direction now from the agency that, you know, we should be positioning jacks essentially behind TNF blockers uh, in anyone over age 50 who's got cardiovascular risk factors, which is, you know, mo most patients. So um, I, I think it's, I think it has changed prescribing practices already. Um, you know, maybe just as, as the pandemic's already changed some prescribing practices. So there's a lot to think about now as a treating rheumatologist. It seems so much easier a year ago. <laughs> That's right. The world has shifted on its axis. That's correct. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this paper. It's an integrated safety analysis of Phil Gottlieb in moderate to severely active RA receiving treatment. The median was about 1.6 years, but they had a few patients out for five years. Can you tell us a little bit about that Finch program for those people that don't know it and that you pooled all together for this study? Yeah, you bet. This, um, you know, this was the culmination of many years of the development program for this uh, molecule for, for RA. So this was looking at phase two and phase three data as well as LTE data from that program. 
Uh, so it was collected over a number of years. I, I don't know how many years, uh, but you know that the I was involved in the phase two and then the phase three. It seemed like it took five, four, five years to get through all that. But um, you know, it, it was nice. It's a fairly large collection of data. It's similar to the other Jack programs in terms of the numbers and the length of time of exposure to the to the Jack inhibitor prior to you know the, the finishing of the program and approval. And as you know, Philgo did not get approved here. It it was kind of put on hold, and I think FDA wanted more data, so the decision was made to to transfer the molecule back to Galapagos. Uh, from Gilead. And so Galapagos, of course, uh, is approved. They did get it approved in Europe uh, in a number of places. And so I know people are starting to use it, use it, which is great. Um, so I think this safety data from this, uh, this analysis lays the roadmap for what we might expect uh, and for, you know, certainly the things we want to study in the post-marketing period. Um, you know, just to hit the highlights, you know, I mean, I guess, the, the, the FDA's label change that came from TOFA data in a very specific post-marketing study now has been, of course, uh, extrapolated across all the JACs. And I guess it would include Philgo, although Philgo is not in the market here, so, so FDA didn't speak to Philgo. But, you know, Philgo, it does look a little different in, in this analysis, just in terms of some rates are, are slightly lower than maybe some of the other programs. And whether that's due to different programs being done in different places at different times, you know, it's hard to compare these clinical trial development programs. And I don't think you can. So I do think you got to wait till there's this post-marketing, uh, you know, use of the drug. Registry and, stuff, yeah. Yeah, we can, can do you some explain, studies, yeah. For those people who are not clear, could you just explain what an EAIR is? You know, it's a, just an exposure adjusted instance rate. So, um, you know, it, it's it's basically what all instance rates should be. <laughs> it's just you're you know you're putting cases of whatever you're following in the numerator and the denominator. You should simply have the the exposure time, uh, the total exposure time of the individuals at risk for that outcome. So, so that is it a way of 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 um accounting for shorter placebos and shorter comparator times compared to the longer term? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when you're looking at placebo controlled time periods and everyone's at 16 weeks, 24 weeks and all the arms, and of course you can just kind of look at percentages, but once you start, you know, getting some trials that have different um, time periods of exposure, and then you add the LTEs in, you know, obviously you're getting uh, wild with exposure times being potentially different between, um, exposure group so yeah so then we we really want to focus on instance rates at that point yeah because we you know the stuff presented at various meetings we get this flavor that there might be a bit less zoster there might be a bit of safety related to jack one selectivity so what what did you actually find in the study what was there a dose response for example we keep trying to work out 100 200 efficacy a little bit better with 200 is there safety difference between the two yeah, you know, what I thought was interesting is I, I know this data forward and backwards, having been involved in it so long, and th there is not a dose response really that's observed in this, this program. Um, and my interpretation- Efficacy that, or safety? Well, from a safety standpoint, and there, there, is, there is a little bit on the efficacy side, and you, you could better comment on that. Uh, but, but, you know, from a safety standpoint, these doses look very similar, which was why I was a bit surprised about the FDA's uh, ruminations about 
about this. Um, you know, I'll show you what we found. I mean, for example, what's what struck me as fascinating is that for serious infection, the rates of serious infection were right about the same as all the other JAK inhibitors in their programs, and very similar to what we see in TNF blockers, and actually most of the biologics in their phase three programs. So, so the rates of infection were, you know, on average two two and a half per hundred patient years. But what was interesting, Peter, is that the rate for the 100 milligram dose was statistically significantly less than the rate for the 200 milligram dose. It was 1.6 for the 100 and 3.1 for the 200. So it was almost double for the, or, or I'm sorry, it was 1.6 for the 200, 3.1 for the 100. So it was okay, almost so that, double that, the rate yeah. in the in the hundred milligram dosage. So that that was totally backwards, right? And yes. what do, what do I think? Do I think that's real? I, no, I think it's a fluke. But but what it tells me is I think probably the, the risk is very similar with the two doses. Um, two if doses. you looked at Zoster, you saw what we thought we'd see. You see a slightly higher rate with with the two hundred instead of the hundred. So the flip, you know, the, the converse to what we saw with serious infection. And there, the rates were 1.8 per 100 patient years versus 1.1 per 100 patient years for the lower dose. But even those rates, as I mentioned, were you know, quite a bit lower than what we saw in the other Jack and Hibbert programs yeah. um, done earlier. So, yeah, just to put that in perspective with the infection, we expect three per 100 patient years just from prednisone and methotrexate alone. And we expect three per hundred patient years zoster rates in sort of America and Europe and whatever. So if anything, it's kind of lowish, which either is a selection bias thing, because it wasn't vaccination, wasn't very few people were vaccinated. Yeah, very few people were vaccinated. I mean, you know, I, I, I would think more were vaccinated in this program than say the TOFA program that was 10 years earlier. So I, I certainly think there's probably you know, maybe less people at risk in this program than, than say one that was done six to 10 years ago. But, um, you know, in, in the phase two program, it was a bit different because uh, the regions, they, there wasn't a lot of Asian representation in the phase two program. In fact, my memory is that there was, there was really none. And of course, that's where we see the highest rates with all the all the jack inhibitors. So, so in phase three, I do know they, you know, the regions in the enrollment were, were somewhat similar very similar to the other programs. Um, but again, the time period was, was quite different. So it, it's hard to know, you know how, how that time period could account for differential vaccination or just even at risk due to prior exposure, things like that. So the other funny thing was that uh, the risk factors for Zoster in this trial, age over 65, but being on steroids didn't seem to make any increase in risk and being on concomitant methotrexate, that's kind of didn't make sense. Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. So, so with the TOFA data, we, we definitely found, initially we kind of thought we saw some risk additional with methotrexate prednisone. Eventually the methotrexate, you know, when we had more exposure time and we modeled it, it, it wasn't a risk factor, but the, the steroids definitely added to the risk, right? And, and we know steroids are a risk and they should add to risk. Um, in this program and actually in the UPA program too, I mean, when that was modeled, um, you know, we really didn't, didn't see steroids come out as an independent risk factor. And so, you know, I, I don't know what the reason for that is. Um, sometimes you think, well, well, maybe it's because whatever the, the other risk factors are, are so strong, you know, adding, 
adding an additional one doesn't really change it, right? Maybe they're already at high risk enough from their jack inhibitor or some other factor that, you know, steroids don't really make a difference. Um, that's kind of one idea, but the other idea is you're just underpowered or the other idea is maybe sure. it's just random. We're not seeing it. Um, yeah, yeah, so fair I, enough. I don't know, but it, it is interesting. And I, but I, I mean, I have to believe that steroids are, are we know they're a risk by themselves. Um, so it, it would make sense that, that they either don't change the risk much when added to a jack and error, or they, they would, they would enhance the risk. And the history of Zoster tripled the risk. So they're the kinds of things we have to make sure we remember to ask our patients about. Yeah, so that that was, to me, the most interesting thing is that, you know, in the TOFA program, when we went to that, we never asked people about the history of Zoster. We didn't collect that information. And uh, that that's fascinating to me that that is, it turns out, to be one of the strongest risk factors, at least what we saw in this data. And um, it, it's it's very counterintuitive because in general in life, most people, I mean, almost everyone who has Zoster, they have it once and they don't have it again. And the idea is that, of course, you've basically vaccinated yourself when you have, have it, right? You boost your immunity and you you should be protected for a long time period. What's fascinating is that in each of these JAK programs, there's this group of people that they just don't do that. They actually have recurrent zoster. It's about three to 5% of patients in all the JAK programs that have recurrent zoster during the program. So they're, they're clearly not, they're not boosting their immunity when they have their outbreak. And I don't know why that is. There's something different about those people. Um, just like, and it may have to do with the fact that they're on a JAK inhibitor and that's um, you know, that that's the issue that it's not allowing them to build the immunity that they should. So I, I will be very interested in the vaccine studies that, that we're doing and a few others are doing to, to look at this issue. You know, people who are on jack inhibitors, when you actually vaccinate them, what happens? What's the immunogenicity and what's the long term efficacy? So those are things we got to figure out. And I think if we think Zoster with the jacks, you wait till anifrolumab, the interferon inhibitor comes, that's going to really give us some Zoster. So we better talk about the other things that were signals from oral surveillance, VTE, MACE and malignancy, any kind of comments about this clinical trial program and those things? Yeah, I, I, my only comment would be we, we really didn't see those things. I mean, the, the numbers and the rates of those things are really low. There were no VTEs in the placebo controlled trial periods. Um, so that's unlike the other programs and particularly Barry, of course, where, this, where there was this imbalance between the two arms in the first you know, 12 weeks or 16 weeks. So there were no cases here. And then overall, the, the rate was quite low for VT. I think it was like 0.2 in the 200 milligram arm. And I, I think it was zero in the 100 milligram arm. So it, we really only had a, a handful of cases. Um, uh, in fact, it, you know, eight or nine cases in, throughout the whole program. So that was quite low. The malignancy rates were kind of right in the ballpark of what we see in all the JAK programs, uh, I think 0 0.6, 0 0.5. And we're usually bouncing between that and 0.8 when you look at those programs. Again, as you know, these are short-term data sets, malignancy. It's not a great place to study malignancy given the long latency of those events. Um, but, and then, you know, MACE, the MACE rates were, you know, right where they should be and they're quite low. Um, so, you know, I, that, that's the answer there. I mean, we're, 
if I looked at this data, I would have no sense that that this jack inhibitor or jack inhibitors in general are <clears throat> risk or risk for some of these things. You know, so oral surveillance is really just this landmark study where a lot of these findings, I think, were driven by age, higher dose TOFA, um, you know, and probably some other factors. But but clearly, I I, I think you can understand you can hear where I'm going with it. I, I'm not sure all the jack inhibitors carry the same risk. And I think at lower doses, they're all pretty similar. And when you when you get in terms of their risk factors, particularly when you use them in younger people, right? You just don't see as much uh, you know, as many adverse events, which is really true of any drug, I guess. Yeah, I'll, I'll, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think there's any point in pulling out the over 50 with a cardiovascular risk and seeing what happens, or will the numbers be too small? From uh, this program, the Philgo program? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. We, we didn't do that. Um, you know, we, we modeled age, you know, for some of the outcomes, of course, such as you know, herpes zoster, but there, there were so few VTEs, for example, Peter, I, you just couldn't even look at that. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's going to require longer, bigger trial programs and, you know, or, yeah. you know, post-marketing studies. Or registries. That, that's, yeah. Registries. I mean, that's true of the berry. That, that's true of all these, these compounds. Yeah. So, and, and again, the creatinine, CK and gastric perf, the numbers were tiny, hey? Huh? Yeah, the GI perfs were just a couple, I think three, if I remember right. So really low rates. Um, and uh, boy, I, you know, I, it's in general, this compound looked similar to the other compounds. Uh, however, there are some exceptions here. And, you know, the, the lower rate of Zoster was one. And then probably the lower rates of VTE uh, would be the other thing that's notable. But again, okay. you know, all the caveats uh, there about comparing yeah. across programs. Finally, the sperm count issue was one of the things that the FDA wanted more info on. They didn't have the results of the manta ray studies. Um, comments on this now that that has come out and showed the lowest sperm rates in the placebo arm compared to the treatment arm. Yeah, it makes me want to get on treatment, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> what, about, what about, is it reversible, do you think, or we just don't know if there's any, is it a true issue for this drug or not, do you think? I, I don't know that it's a true issue. I mean, I, you know, from what I've seen from that data, it sounds like it's uh, not an issue. Um, I haven't seen a full accounting of everything yet. I don't know, maybe you have, but right. um but yeah, it seems like it's not an issue. And I, I guess my position was, even if it was an issue um, early on, uh, you know, before we had more data, this was something that could be dealt with. I mean, obviously you could steer the drug towards people where they don't care about the sperm count. Uh, so females would be the obvious choice. And then, you know, maybe some older men don't, don't, don't care about that thing. So, and, and we've been using salazapyrin, which does the same forever without it being a major issue. So thank you so much. Last question. Do you think it's a safer jack? And do you think the selectivity is the reason why? <laughs> I don't know. And I don't know. But I think it's worth <laughs> hypothesizing. I, it's a good hypothesis. And it deserves further, further testing. And you, you know, the, the data would suggest it's a reasonable hypothesis to test. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think one of the issues too, and you saw that with oral surveillance, you know, 
tofutin, when you start pushing these doses, you know, everything becomes less selective and they become more panjack like. So, you know, at higher doses of all these compounds, they may have some overlap of some of these rare side effects that we're just not seeing it at the approved doses or lower doses. So, um, so I, I don't know. I, I guess I hold out hope. Maybe, maybe this one's safer. Just it's always good to have a safer drug. But, but I, I kind of think again, if you just look at, if you look at the doses across the jacks of the approved doses, and then you look at, you know, younger, particularly people under sixty-five. I mean, the the, the rates and risks they're they're pretty much similar across the board, right? You're you're not going to get in the same kind of trouble with a younger person as you are with, you know, someone who's got a lot of comorbidities who's older. So, so I, I don't know that there, I don't know that it was very fair of FDA to label all the jacks the same way. I, I probably would not have done that. It wasn't necessarily data-based in my mind. I mean, and they, all different diseases, like ones with no risk, like AS and, and PS. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, that, that's not how I would have handled that. Nonetheless, it, they did. I, but I, it seems to me that with further study, it's something that could be um, undone and, uh, you know, made more specific over time. So, so hopefully there'll be more studies on these questions and we'll, we'll be able to pick apart the FDA label and make it more appropriate to each drug. Excellent. So take home message from this study for the practicing clinician. Yeah, if you're in a place that uses uh, that has access to Filgo, I mean, I, I think the take-home message is you should uh, you should feel good about using it. Um, I you know keep the oral surveillance data in mind. I think it it suggests there are some potential risks that we didn't necessarily see in this program, but but um, you know as for now, it looks like it's either similar or or safer than some of the other Jack inhibitors, at least with you know a couple of these specific outcomes. So. So thank you again for your time, Kevin. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media. Rate us uh, five out of five so we can keep this thing going and let us know what you think. So thank you very much for your time, Kevin. Greatly appreciate it.